um, because he got frustrated and tired of his old queen, so he got rid of her. And he went out looking, he had kind of an American Idol sort of thing for wife selection. And he found Esther, and he made her his wife. And one of the king's right-hand men holds a grudge against this guy named Mordecai. He was also a Jew. And, and he says, I'm going to work out this plan to get all of the Jews killed, run away, all of this. And Mordecai goes and tells Esther, who is the queen, you need to go talk to your husband about this. You need to go tell him that something bad is going to happen to our people, not just me, but your people as well. And you need to, as the queen, go talk to the king. <coughs> and Esther has similar reservations to the person who's just going to take off running towards the president. Uh, Esther 4.11, she's talking to Mordecai, and she says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. So she's saying, look, I can't just walk up to the king. There's this rule. If you just walk up to the king unannounced, you are to be put to death. She's not going to be put to death. <laughs> but if you walk up to the king uninvited, unannounced, that's like a death wish. You're asking for trouble. You are run, you are dead sprinting towards the president while he's giving a speech. Right? They're just going to put you down. Unless he chooses to have mercy. And one of the things that we know about this king, who was, again, the most powerful king of the time, he was not a merciful guy. He, he basically, the reason he had a new wife was because he asked his first wife to basically wear some negligee and come hang out with all of the army so that they could ogle his wife and he could feel proud of his wife. And she said no. So he fired her. Right, this is the guy. This is the level of morality we're talking about. So, so, so for her saying no to something like that, doesn't necessarily, and then being ousted, doesn't fill Esther with confidence that he's not going to just let her be killed if she goes and talks to him. And if you continue reading the story of Esther, she, she tells Mordecai and the rest of the Jews, she said, if I'm going to do this, you have to back me up. I want you to fast and pray for three days. No food, no water, three days. Pray for me so that I can do this. And, and spoiler alert, she goes and talks to the king. He doesn't kill her. Ultimately, after several days, she, she, she kind of tells this whole plot that this guy, Haman, had against the, uh, the Jews, and the king puts Haman to death and exalts the Jews. And that's the story of Esther. But, but she had to, she was terrified going into the king's court to make a request, to, to make something known to the king so that he could do something on her behalf. She had this problem that she needed to address, but she was terrified because that king might have her killed just for walking into his presence uninvited. And when it's and when it's describing where she would have to go, it says, "Know that any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court." Think of that idea. I want you to get this idea of an inner court in your mind because we keep coming back to this thought today. This is like the most protected place. This is the place that really is just for the king. There aren't a lot of servants that get to go in there. It's only people that he invites, people that 
king wants to come into his courtroom with him. That's like the inner place. That's the inside place. That's the place that he, he only welcomes a select few. And those that word, that, those words, inner court, kind of remind me of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple, um, which was the most holy place in the center of the temple where the presence of God lived. The presence of God sat among the people. And you couldn't go in there, right? You don't go in there. If you go in there unannounced, uninvited, you are dead. Because the presence of God was so holy that anyone who walked into the presence outside of the way in which God determined he wanted you to come in was going to die. And you can read about that in uh, Leviticus chapter 16 where it really spells out all the details of the Day of Atonement, which was one of the Jewish holidays. I would recommend reading that. I'm not going to read it all today. I would recommend reading that before you go see Jesus week. Just so you can kind of have in mind the level of detail that God required for the priest to enter his presence in the Holy of Holies. Because there was this huge ceremonial ritual that the priest would have to go through where he'd have to, he'd have to wash himself, put on a certain robe, offer a sacrifice, wash himself again, put on a different robe, go in, offer a sacrifice, and then maybe after who knows how many hours of preparation, he could walk into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. And he only got to do this one time a year. This was a one time a year thing. And if he messed up in that process, or if he went in there with sin in his heart that was unatoned for by the sacrifice that he offered for himself, he probably was not coming back alive. So what kind of mindset must that guy have had walking into the presence of God? I would tend to think a pretty similar feeling to Esther walking into the presence of the king or the person who's going to jump up and take a dead sprint towards the president of the United States, right? There is risk in this. I am worried about what the possible outcome of this event may be. I mean, the priest had even got to the point that he would wear bells on his clothes and tie a rope around his waist so that the people outside the curtain could hear whether or not he was still moving around in there or whether or not they needed to drag out a dead body. Because nobody could go in and get it. Because if you go in, you walk into the presence of God, and you're going to join him. Right? right? This was the level of risk. This was the level of specificity. This is the level of holiness that to be in God's presence demands. So, Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to talk a little bit about the presence of God today. Being in the presence of God, being welcomed into the presence of God. And I want you to think again, keep in mind that idea, that most holy place, that inner court, that place that no one goes without fear and trembling and being terrified of what possible outcomes may be. Uh, and we'll go ahead and finish up the chapter. It's going to be verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. I'll just stop right there real quick. So we keep talking about rest. We keep talking about entering into God's rest. We keep talking about not drifting away. And there haven't been a ton of, how do you do that? I think this is one good piece of advice right here. Hold fast to your confession of Jesus. Claim to Jesus to enter into his rest. Let's move on. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the author is kind of shifting now into one of the big points of the whole book of Hebrews. This is kind of the big point. This is going to carry us, this idea, through like the end of chapter 10. Like very near the end of the book. We're going to be thinking about Jesus as our great high priest for a while now. And so he's shifting here, and I, I, I don't know why. Why the people who were translating this didn't put the chapter break right before this, right? You know? It's just like, it seems like he's, it seems like he's changing thoughts right now. It seems like we're making a drastic shift from one idea to another. And I kept thinking about why did the chapter break three verses before? If he's changing the direction he's talking, why do we have this break here? And, and yeah, it was, it was imperfect people who translated this. It was imperfect people who made the decision for the chapter breaks work. Because we know when the author of Hebrews wrote this, he didn't say, this is going to be chapter 4, this is going to be chapter 5. We know that. But for some reason, God sovereignly saw fit to leave the chapter break after verse 16 of chapter 4. And I wondered why. And I didn't really look about look look around to see why that was, and nobody that I read really addressed it. But I think it's because he's still trying to help us connect this idea of because Jesus is our high priest, because we have a better high priest, we still get to enter into the rest that he's been talking about for this whole chapter. Because he doesn't want us to lose sight of what the goal is, the end game here is. He doesn't want us to miss out on the idea of entering rest. Just because there is a high priest, if we reject him, we're still going to miss out on rest. So I think he still wants to connect us to this is the promised goal for you. This is what I want for you. This is the thing that's going to be best for you. But you need a high priest who can serve you in a way that is fit to see that I can have work, that I will offer my grace to you. And you need an intermediary that's going to bring you into that rest. So I think it's good that it's still contained in that chapter because in our minds, as we read this, we think chapter 4 is going to be different from chapter 5 is going to be different from chapter 6. And we just kind of mentally kind of start separating these things out. But all of this, and we talked about this last week, all of this, this whole book is connected. Not just Hebrews, the whole Bible is telling one big story about how God is trying to redeem the creation and tell away. So it's all connected, and I don't want us to lose sight of that. So again, I'll just, just reiterate. In verse 14. Since we have this high priest, Jesus, and again he says his name, and he hasn't said his name too many times. It's like he saves the name Jesus for when he's really trying to hit on his point. When he's really trying to make it connect. All of these, all of this case that I've been building, I want you to think through the case, think through the case, and I'm going to remind you, I'm talking about Jesus, who is this real guy that you guys have heard eyewitness accounts of people walking around talking to you. You know this guy was real. This guy, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So we have to hold fast to Jesus. That's it. I could just stop right there. I'm not going to. But I could just stop right there. Hold fast to Jesus. If we aren't holding on to Jesus, if we aren't saying, I need him more than anything else. Right? What's our theme for this whole book of Hebrews? Jesus is better. If, we, if, if I don't view that Jesus is better than anything else in my life, and I don't desire to hold on to him tighter than anything else, then I'm missing the point. I might be missing out on this promised rest that God has for me. So hold fast to Jesus. 
So what does it mean when it says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens? What's that? Does that make sense? Anybody just immediately understand exactly what it means to pass through the heavens? Does anybody think, uh, they're probably using the word heavens there as just this kind of big, kind of general word that kind of just describes everything that's not earth. And, and I kind of read it that way, but one of the things that all the commentaries that I read point out is that really is a plural use of the word heaven. It's not like just this big, vague, general thing. So what, what do we know about heaven or heavens as it is? Well, we know that in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 12, verse 2, Paul said that he was taken up to the third heaven. Now, if that doesn't confuse you even more, something wrong with you, or you're really smart and you can explain this to me. But what everybody can best guess is that heaven has a bunch of different regions in it. Heaven has a bunch of, almost like counties. Does that make sense? So I'm from Hawkins County Heaven. <laughs> or I'm from Sullivan County Heaven. I don't think it's quite like that. Now, this is, I, I'm pairing what I read from some guys into what makes sense in my brain. So my brain's odd sometimes. But some people kind of start describing all of these regions of heaven. I'll, I'll kind of make a case for why I think it's, it's almost being like circular all around different smaller regions as you get smaller. So like you have this one region, and then when you enter the next region, you get a little bit closer to the center, a little bit closer to the center. And they're saying, like, Jesus passed through all the regions of heaven, right to the center of heaven, right to the inner court, so to speak, right where the presence of God, like, sits on his throne. And in my mind, that makes sense, because when you think back through all of Scripture, everything that God establishes, everything that God ordains, everything that God orchestrates, is pointing towards something great. Right? So you have the nation of Israel, which represents the church. Right? You had, you had David the king who represents Jesus sitting on his throne. And, and we already talked about it. I think you had the temple, which had this holy of holies that sat in the center of it, which was, which was the most sacred place where the presence of God lived. And I think that's kind of the idea we get here, that God is at the very center of heaven. He's sitting here in this most holy place, this place where he is most exalted, this place where all of the different, all of heaven is looking in toward him seeing his presence and his glory. And so when it says in verse 14, since then we have a great, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, it's saying what Jesus accomplished took him right to the side of God, right to the throne of God, where he can now sit down at his right hand and he can rule and reign over all of us. He is immediately taken to the place of the most glory, the most exaltation. It's not like, it's not, I don't want to say that you have like commoners in heaven, but I would still tend to think that anybody who's not God kind of feels like a commoner standing next to him, even in a glorified, resurrected state at the end of everything. That you still look to God and say, there's something better about him than me. Right? Maybe we're not broken, but we're still not God. And so I think what we're seeing here is he's saying Jesus, the Son of God, is being exalted just as highly as God. He is going straight to the throne. 
And he's going to get to sit and rule and reign over us now because of his completed work. So when you read these things like these heavens, you're like, well, what does that mean? Are you saying there are counties in heaven? And are you saying that it's shaped like a big donut? I'm kind of trying to think about it, but I don't want us to get distracted by that. Right? It's really easy to see that sort of thing and be like, I really want to understand what that means. And then go off on this wild tangent, trying to figure out exactly what heaven looks like. When the Bible doesn't specifically describe exactly what heaven looks like. And we get so distracted by that that we miss the point. The point is that Jesus is glorified to the point that he's able to walk right into the throne room of God and sit down and be glorified there even alongside him. That's the point. So when he's saying, we have a great high priest who has passed through heaven, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to this great king who is now sitting down and interceding for us as our great high priest. That's the point. It's not, what is heaven going for? It's, man, Jesus is being exalted as highly as God. Jesus is being exalted higher than anything that we could ever imagine or picture. So then verse 15, let's read it again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The first time in the book of Hebrews that it mentioned Jesus as our great high priest was a couple chapters ago in chapter 2, verse 17. And at the same time, when he was making that mention, he's kind of alluding to this greater conversation about Jesus as high priest then. He also immediately tapped in to the humanity of Jesus. Because, because he just finished this big verse about how he is high and exalted like God. He's sitting with God and we're thinking, man, he is God. He is completely God. Right next to that, what is it he starts describing that? He is just like us. He went through things just like us. He suffered just like us. And in both places, he emphasizes the humanity and the, I guess, will weakness that Jesus took on himself. Right? He allowed himself to be made weak so that he could go through the same kinds of trials and temptations that we face. So he is able to sympathize with our weakness. Because he was tempted and tested just like we are, yet without sin. So, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word there for tempted, for temptation. Um, but it kind of has a dual meaning. It can mean either you are being tempted so that I can drag you down. That was the mindset that Satan had when he was tempting Jesus. And we talked a little bit about that last week in Matthew chapter 4. That he said... I'm going to try to drag this guy down. I'm going to try to make him fall. I'm going to try to discredit him. I'm going to try to keep him from accomplishing his mission. And that's one means of temptation. The other means of temptation is, I'm offering you this so that you can resist and be built up because of having gone through whatever this trial was. And so when we're talking about the temptation that Jesus faced, we're talking about both. Because, because yes, both Satan was trying to pull him down, but at the same time, God was giving him these opportunities that he could overcome, that he could build him up and exalt him and show him as the one who lived this life without sin. And we face both options as well. We don't perfectly answer the call the way Jesus did. But the idea is still there. When we are tempted by something, the temptation to do whatever sin you are being tempted to do in itself is not sin. 
Just because, just because there's this carrot being dangled out in front of you, this, this, maybe it's pride, maybe it's something else. Whatever that may be, the temptation to give in to that is not in itself sin. And that's why, some, and, and, and you have to say that because sometimes when we feel like we've been facing this, like, I am really wanting to just commit this thing. I'm really wanting to do this thing. I'm really feeling the urge to do that. And we get all down on ourselves. And we feel, how worthless am I because I still want to do this thing that I thought I'd defeated? Well, have you given in to it? No. That's not a sin. That's not a sin. And, and, and we can't beat ourselves up because we're being tempted by something. Because odds are we're being tempted by something because we've tried to give it up already. Or because the Holy Spirit is working on us to separate us from it anyway. And that thing is trying to pull us back in. So we can't be defeated by the fact that we are being tempted. Because Jesus was tempted and he didn't sin. So it is possible to be tempted and not to sin. To not give in to that sin. To not be dominated by that. Let's go ahead and jump down here. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a completely different picture than we got in all of those other situations, right? It's a completely different picture than we got with the Holy of Holies. It's a completely different picture than we got with the story of Esther. God is saying, come to me and don't worry. Come, talk to me. Come with full confidence. What is something that you are completely confident in? Is there anything that you are completely confident in? Were you really confident when you sat down that that chair was going to not break? In this church, probably not. <laughs> Some of these are sturdy, more sturdy than others. <clears throat> what does it feel like to have full confidence? I don't know that I don't know that any of us have ever truly experienced the idea of full, complete, 100% confidence in anything. Right? I mean, I'm going to be a nerd now. I'm going to be a nerd. So I found this really awesome physics channel on YouTube. Bad. Anyways, it's called Veritasium. This guy's really interesting. He does all these really cool physics experiments. And, and the way that he goes around teaching these concepts of physics is he walks up and says, so I've got this one ball that weighs 100 pounds, and I've got this one ball that weighs 20 pounds. When I drop them, which one's going to hit the ground first? And some people say, well, obviously the heavier one. Some will say, obviously the lighter one. Some will say, obviously they'll hit at the same time. Does anybody know the right answer? They'll hit at the same time. And then they'll say, why? When he does it, they'll drop them. They'll both hit. They say, so why did they hit at the same time? And he said, well, because the pull of gravity was the same on both of them. And he says, no. And you say, why? And all this time, he's kind of, you want the, I'll give you the answer just so you don't worry. It's because, he said it was because gravity pulls harder on the heavier one, but it also has a higher inertia because it's heavier. So it doesn't want to start moving. You can think that through later. Talk amongst yourselves. Maybe not a CG. That's not necessarily the conversation I want you to have in the community groups this week. But that's the correct answer. Having said that, but what he's doing is he's asking you a question, and you're coming back fully confident in your answer, right? And 
every time he asks you another question, you get a little less confident, a little less confident, and a little less confident in what you originally thought was going to happen, right? Um, and if you are able to be made a little less confident each time he asks you one more question, specifying what you understand about something, how, it, it, I think it's beginning to prove how confident you were not at the beginning. Like, you thought you were confident, but there was really no confidence there because you weren't able to fully understand, fully explain, or fully know exactly how something was going to happen. So I don't know that we've all ever truly experienced full confidence, but we've been given that invitation here. By God, approach the throne of grace with confidence. And what does he say he'll do? Let us approach then and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's not, a, it's not like a come once a year with fear and trembling that you may die and somebody may have to drag you back out of my presence. Right? Because we know after Jesus died, the curtain that separated the people from God was torn. Right? We've heard this. We've heard this story. God tore the curtain from top to bottom saying, look, you can come into my presence anytime because Jesus' sacrifice has accomplished all that it needs to accomplish. And now he can be your intermediary between you and me. We can have this conversation. You can be confident in me. You can trust me. We can trust God that what he promises us, he will fulfill. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can, we can walk right into the presence of God. This is, like, so like I said, it's not a one time a year, I'm kind of nervous about this. It's a stand up from your seat and take a dead sprint towards God. He's not going to have you shot down. He's going to open his arms and he's going to welcome you. And he's going to say, tell me what you're going through. Tell me what you're being tempted with. Tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me about the hard things that are going on in your life. Let me be there for you. I am there for you. I am going to take care of you. This is that promise that he's making. And I don't want us to associate confidence with arrogance. Because sometimes when, when, when fallen, broken people like me think they're confident in something, it quickly shifts over to arrogance. And what is arrogance? Pride. Arrogance is, arrogance is when I'm no longer confident in something that God has promised, but now I am confident in what I am, or what I can do. Look at how confident I am. Watch this. I'm going to... I don't have any special talents. I'm going to cross the street without getting hit by a car. There you go. I am confident that I can cross the street without hitting a car. Look at me. Model your lives and your crossing the streets after the way I cross the street. That's a really awful metaphor. I'm so sorry. I was hoping something better would come to me. But when it stops being about, man, look at how much I can trust Jesus. Look at how I can run to Jesus and he's going to take care of me. And it becomes, look at the confidence that I have. As soon as we take it away from looking at Jesus to looking at me, it's no longer confidence, it's arrogance. And we can be arrogant about spiritual seeming things. Man, look at how confident I am that I haven't given into this temptation. Look at how 
confident I am that I'm doing all the things that Jesus wants me to do. Man, you should want to be more like me. And if we're modeling our lives after the way Jesus wants us to, people should want to model their lives after the way we do. Paul even said that, right? Paul said, if you're confused about how a Christian life should look, look at me. But I'm able to live this life because of the Holy Spirit empowering me. Paul didn't say, I'm doing this on my own. Paul said, I'm doing this because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I'm doing this because of the power of Jesus, because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So he wasn't making it about himself. He was using himself as a model, but not, but not out of arrogance. But out of confidence that the power of God was in him. And that he was able to live his life according to the way that Jesus wanted him to. Does that make sense? That, that's the line that I want us to, to make sure we don't cross to where it becomes about us and no longer about Jesus. Because if you read this whole passage here, none of this is about us. None of this is about us. It's about our great high priest who has done everything for us. And it's about our great high priest who made himself weak so that he could show us how to respond here to him. And it's about our great high priest who welcomes us to come into his presence. So how do we confidently approach the throne? That's the question. If I just said, approach the throne of grace confidently and I didn't tell you how to, that wouldn't be very helpful. I think the first one is through prayer. That would make sense. We had prayer night, when was that? What, two, three weeks now? We had prayer night? Awesome. We're going to do them again least every couple of months. And all we did, we all came here, we had a bunch of prayer requests on the table, and we grabbed some prayer requests, and we'd go pray. When we were done praying for those prayer requests, we'd bring them back and put them on the table, we grabbed some other ones. And we were all signing our names on just to say, I prayed for this, I prayed for this, we didn't want to leave anything out. But, but what we realized is by the end, everybody that had come that night had prayed for just about every single one of those prayer requests. For a long time. Like, people were just taking them, sitting down, going, People were taking five or ten minutes on one card or two cards, and it was awesome. People were getting up, they're like, oh, that reminds me, I want to pray for this. They right. We like tripled the number of prayer requests by the end of the night that we had at the beginning. I think Daniel posted all the prayer requests on the city. So if you're curious as to what things are being prayed for, and you might happen to find out that you were one of those things, because we prayed for our people, go look on the city. Go look out there and see what things we prayed for. Use those as a reminder to pray for those things. And also see, start to look and see what is God doing with those prayers. But it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be that we call the special prayer night you approach the front. Right? It doesn't have to be that we're going to say, well, we're going to take two and a half, three hours on a Sunday night, we're going to come back and we're going to pray. That's not the only time we can do this. You can do something similar in your CG. I assume all of us at least pray in our CG. But we can do just the same thing. We can treat that the same way. We can have the same mindset going in. We're approaching the throne confidently, praying that, that he would, would, would answer our call, answer our cries. So you can do it in CG. You can do it by yourself. You should be doing this by yourself. This is one of the... Prayer is one of those things that, for some people, is their first choice. That's the first thing that pops into their mind. For some people, it's the last thing that pops into their mind. 
And we all kind of fall somewhere inside that spectrum, right? Either we're the pray first type, or the pray last type, or the pray we get to be like, I think we should all pray. Does it really come to that? You know, that's kind of our mindset going into things. And, and I think what he's saying here is, you have to first want to just come talk to me. Like, if we, if we get to treat Jesus with, with the kind of relationship he's invited us into, right? Like, he's talking, he's talking, he is the bridegroom, of the church is the bride. That is a close relationship, and there should be constant communication between those two parties. We should always be seeking to go to him in prayer. So, so we approach the throne of grace through prayer. And we approach the throne of grace, like we talked last week, through the word of God. How, we, how do we know what to pray for? We find out what the will of God is, and we pray for that. Where do I start reading? Anywhere. Anywhere. And start asking, what is the will of God? What, is, what am I learning about God? What is God trying to reveal about himself as I am reading this? And if he says, I desire that every tribe, every tongue, every nation cries out to me, well, let's start praying for that. Let's pray that he would say to someone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Well, he says... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so pray that there will be more workers, okay? Let's pray for more workers. What are the things that he says to pray for? And let's pray for those things. So if you don't know what to pray for, go to the Word and find out what it is that he wants you to pray for. Because if you pray his will, your prayer will be answered. That's confidence. That's, that's what confidence looks like. Confidence looks like knowing before you start praying something that God is already going to say yes to. And he's already said, if you pray for me to save people, I will save people. He doesn't say pray that I'll save people the way you want me to save people or in the situation that you want me to. He just pray that I'll save people and trust that it will happen. So we confidently approach the throne through prayer and through the word. How should we? Like, what should, our, what should our attitude be as we approach the throne? I think first we should approach it humbly. Right? We talked about this. Don't let your confidence become arrogance. Don't let it be, I know what you want to do, God. I'm going to tell you how it should be. Don't think yourself as having a level conversation with a peer when you approach God. We have to have a right view of who he is. He is God. Who are we? We're not. If we come to him and we say, I want to talk to you just like you're another one of the guys, or you're one of my friends, though he calls himself our friend, he is not the same as we are. We sit below. We, talk, we talked about creation a couple months ago. We talked about how there was this distinct hierarchy in creation, because there was God, and then there was us. And at the fall, we tried to invert that, or we at least tried to make ourselves parallel like God. And that's when everything fell apart, when we tried to treat ourselves like God's peer. Or as someone who knows better than God. Or thinks that God does not know what is best. We lose our confidence in what he has promised us. So we have to approach him humbly. We have to realize that we are unfit to solve our problems. That's the big thing. Like, like if we have this trouble, we have to not think, I need to tell God how it is that I think is best to fix it. 
I have to trust that God is fully capable of taking care of my needs and meeting my needs the way He desires to. And fully, humbly coming to Him and just saying, however you want to deal with this, God. Because He's the only one who's going to be able to truly do anything right for us. We have to realize that He's the one we've needed all along. That's the thing. That's the idea. I mean, that's the gospel, right? Is realizing that we can't take care of ourselves and we need Jesus to take care of us. Like, we can't do anything to save ourselves, but He's already done everything. It's that same mindset when we come to Him in prayer. It's that same mindset. Not that I have something to offer to you, but instead that you have offered me everything. That's our attitude. So we come to Him humbly and we come to Him honestly. So when something bad's happening in your life, and I'm bad about this, and you're telling that to somebody else, you tend to try to soften the edges of the story, right? I know I do this. I don't want to tell this as bad as it actually is. I want to kind of sugarcoat it a little bit, make it a little bit more palatable, maybe make myself come out looking a little bit better as I tell this story. Or not seem so weak. Maybe it's not even that I've done something wrong, but I don't want to be seen as, I don't want to be seen as a victim. I don't want to be seen as weak. I don't want to be seen as something, somebody that's being talked down to or treated more. I don't want to be seen that way. So I'm going to soften it. I'm going to change it a little bit when we tell each other these stories. First of all, that's not real communication. That's not real community. And that's not one of the things that tends to fly CRC. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to experience that yet where you haven't fully disclosed everything about yourself to somebody and somebody keeps asking you more and more questions and digging and digging and digging. But that's the kind of that's the kind of communication, that's the kind of intimate conversation that I think scripture provides for us in the church and between us and God. What point is there in me sugarcoating my story as I'm talking to God and try to make it sound more like something that you want to Bless. Why would I modify? Why would I try to justify my actions to God who knows exactly what my heart is all along? If we've done something wrong, if we if we if we're coming to Him broken and asking for repentance or asking for help because we don't know how to get out of the situation, why wouldn't we just tell Him exactly how we feel, completely honestly, right? We think, what do we think, that he doesn't already know? Or is it that we just don't want to admit to ourselves the way that we actually feel, and that we actually feel broken and weak and unable to take care of ourselves? Because that goes back to pride. That's not coming to God humbly. That's saying, I don't want you to see me broken for who I really am. He already sees you for exactly who you are. He's known exactly who you were your whole life. So we come to God humbly, and we come to him honestly. We say exactly the thing that we're struggling with, or exactly the thing to bring the request to him that we have, whatever that may be. Because how does it describe him? As merciful, gracious, helpful in time of need. We have to be able to admit, not only to ourselves, but to God, that we have need. That we don't have everything under control. That we can't take care of everything on our own. Right. This is, this is a humble kind of thing. Come to me when you realize that you aren't your ultimate fulfillment. That's really what he's saying. When you realize that you can't do anything, 
Come to me knowing that you aren't the end of everything. So what are the things that I'm praying for? Here's a couple of things that I've been kind of praying for lately. Um, peace and not worry. That's kind of a good one right now. Just kind of Lots of transition, lots of instability, but I've just been praying for confidence that he knows exactly what he's doing, right? Everything, everything has been changing in all of our lives we've been here the last six months and we're going to kind of continue to kind of fall into place over the next six months. And what God does with 2014 at CRC is going to be I think, I think it's going to be the thing that we look back to however many years down the road and say, we thought things were confusing and frustrating or terrifying back then, but man, look at what God was getting ready to do through that. There was a reason that he put us through that situation. So I'm praying for peace while we're in it, while we're figuring out what he's going to do with us next, while we're figuring out how he's going to build the church here, while we're while we're exploring all of our options and figuring out the things that we can do and, and building up leaders and all of that, I'm just praying just that I will have the confidence that he says I should have. It. And he says, approach me confidently, so I'm praying for confidence. And I think that's a prayer that he's going to answer. I'm praying that we would all be true lovers of Jesus. That, that this... This tagline that we're using for Hebrews, that Jesus is better, wouldn't just feel like a tagline to us. That it would actually be a definition of how we live our lives. That Jesus is better than insert thing that you struggle with here. Jesus is better than dessert. Jesus is better than sleep. Jesus is better than live sporting events on your favorite cable sports channel. Jesus is better than whatever it is that you're struggling with. And that we would all be so in love with who Jesus is. All of us. My family. My church family. All of us. That we would be so in love with We couldn't help but live our lives in a way that make everything else just kind of pale in comparison. And I don't know that, I know that in my life, it doesn't always reflect that. I would venture to guess that in all of your lives, there are areas that you struggle for it to really look like that. And I'm and kind of along that note, I'm also praying that we would start having some genuine responses to the gospel as a result of the ministry here at CRC specifically. Because it's one thing for us to say, let's be missional, let's be mission-minded, let's go out and talk to people. Let's... If we're not presenting the gospel and seeing genuine responses, I didn't say, notice, I didn't say people getting saved necessarily. I just want genuine responses. And genuine responses come from genuine gospel presentation. Like us genuinely talking about what we believe and genuinely showing that we think Jesus is 
better. And that other people, we want to believe that way too and live their life that way too. And that may scare some people away, but that's a genuine response. Because we are genuinely revealing the gospel to you. We're genuinely speaking the gospel. And then, say they say, I want to get in on that. And they see how hard it is to get used to living life in the church. Because being a part of the church is tough. I'm praying that we get genuine people who really want to buy in to being a part of the church. Because if you bought into who Jesus is, you're going to buy into his church. So that's what I'm praying for. I would hope that you're praying for some similar things. I would hope that you're praying that Jesus would do big things through CRC. I would hope that it's not that you're just praying that he would get you through the next day or this, this, next, this next event or this next transition or that whatever that may be in your life. I'm praying that we all would have this big picture mindset as we're praying that God's going to do something big because he said he is. He said he's going to do big things and we want to pray that he would do those big things us. He would use us. He would show us how. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, where y'all playing first? Uh, that's got a good instrument. Let's do this. How about you guys come on up? I'm going to let them play for just a few minutes. And let's just pray. I don't care if a two-year-old wants to chat while we're praying. That's okay. But let's just spend, spend a few minutes praying that we would, we would trust the gospel enough in our own lives that we would live it out everywhere we go. Let's spend a few minutes praying that we would have confidence that God is going to do something big through CRC. And let's pray that we would start seeing genuine responses to the gospel starting today, starting this week, starting with the next interaction we have. Cool? Alright. Let's go ahead and break.